and welcome to the Sullivan County Democrat Podcast. I'm Managing Editor Joe Abraham. Today's podcast is brought to you by the good folks at the Kitchen Table Cafe in Calicoon, New York. Stop by, have a latte, and check out their in-house baked goods. Today's episode is the first in a new series called Memories from a Catskills Performer, where we take a look at different entertainers who performed during the hotel era here in the Catskills. Former Sullivan County Democrat editor Carol Montana, who now reports and freelances for the newspaper, had lunch with Larry Rabden to talk with him about his career in the Catskills and beyond. Here is that interview. When and where were you born? I was born in Newark, New Jersey in April of uh, 1940. April 1940? Yes. Okay. What in your early life influenced you to pursue music as a career? Well, in those days, uh, we listened to the radio. We didn't get a TV until 1951. I was 11 years old. And there was always music on the radio. Uh, there were the big bands. There was the singers of the day, uh, Louis Armstrong and uh, um, Bing Crosby. Uh, Dinah Shore was popular. Uh, the big bands, Basie, Duke Ellington, uh, Harry James, uh, Artie Shaw, uh, Benny Goodman. So. There was always music on the radio in the house, and I guess I was influenced by that, you know, because there was always music. So when did you choose to be a musician? Oh, probably uh, earliest recollection is uh, at nine years old, my fourth grade classroom was next to the auditorium, and uh, every Wednesday morning I heard the orchestra start up, and I really got excited about that. And I knew it was something that I wanted to participate in, but I wasn't exactly sure what instrument I, I would be playing. So that, that's what piqued my interest. And uh, by age 10, uh, it was mostly my mother. My father was very supportive from the beginning because he had the musical talent. He sang well, he had good pitch, he had good taste in music. And uh, I, in his younger days, I guess he picked at the guitar and uh, they waited until I was 10, and I started taking lessons uh, in school, and somehow uh, I started with the saxophone, and within a year, I was already in the orchestra, you know, by age 11. By age 11. So your parents were always supportive of your career choice? Uh, Somewhat. Somewhat. Uh, My mother was not too happy about it because of the security angle, and also, too, because of the lifestyle. Uh, But my father wanted me to have the opportunity. And uh, my dad was my major supporter on that. And my mother, thankfully, uh, before she passed, she thanked me for bringing music into the house. You know, she said that now I can tell the difference between a trumpet and a saxophone. And uh, she said that... uh, your father and I had different plans for you, but this is the way your life turned out, and we're very happy about it. I was a good citizen up here. Uh, I was gainfully employed, thank goodness, and I had a wonderful uh, life experience, and they were able to come up here and share that 
you know, by going to the shows at the hotel, and also, too, for the religious holidays after mom passed, my dad and sister would come up, and we'd go to services at the Concord, and he was able to uh, see and meet people like Jan Pierce and some of the lectures like Isaac Besheva Singer, who was uh, a journalist for the Jewish paper, The Forwards, and uh, he had a wonderful overall experience. So you said that your parents once said to you that this wasn't the idea that we had for you. What was their idea? Probably teaching, Okay. something like that. Uh, uncles of mine uh, encouraged me to go into accounting. My first year in college, I had an accounting course, and I was doing great. And by the midterm, I just said, I can't be doing this for the rest of my life. And I stopped work, I quit, and and that was that. And by a circuitous route, I got back into music. You know, at age 21, I had stopped playing completely for three years, from age 18 until age 21. Then I started to study again with professor of saxophone and clarinet uh, at Juilliard through a friend of mine, Bob Ackerman, and we're still we met at age 13, 1953-54. At first, we were competitors because we played the same instrument, but later on in life, we became uh, best friends and enablers. Uh, You seem to be anticipating some of my questions because my next question was, where did you get your musical training? Uh, In uh, 1951, uh, my dad was an upholsterer by trade. And he he loved doing it. He came from a family of tailors in Europe. And anyhow, one of his fellow workers, uh, his name was John DeAndrea. He was an upholsterer, but he was also a musician. He played saxophone and clarinet. And he had a son, John Jr., who was my age. And uh, my father said, uh, after about uh, a year uh, going on my 11th birthday, he said, uh, you know, who is your son John studying with? And uh, John, the father, recommended uh, a, a former big band musician, man that lived in Bloomfield, New Jersey, by the name of Al Sanerkia. May he rest in peace. And he was my first private teacher. He came out of the big bands. He was with the Dorseys. He was with uh, Glenn Gray Casaloma. He was out on the road with Vaughn Monroe. He had played in Chicago. I think in the 1920s during the uh, uh, Depression era, and he was my first uh, private teacher. At first, we started uh, out uh, doing, uh, after the scales were over, the initial scales, we started doing transcribed violin duets for saxophone. And then around age 12, he got me into the swing studies, uh, anticipating my participation in uh, dance bands and jazz bands. And I entered high school in 1954 in Newark, New Jersey. And predominantly, it was uh, a uh, predominantly black school at the time. And I was in the stage band. I was in the dance band from day one. So, uh, and all the kids were, you know, wonderful improvisers. So from day one in high school, I was you know, participating in the in the band. And I stayed with my original teacher, Al, until I graduated from high school at age 18. He coached me uh, all along. He gave me a wonderful, wonderful foundation. Uh, 
But uh, I was thinking before I came here uh, about about my role. Like some people say, well, I'm a jazz player, I'm this and that. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm a musical actor. I've had to play so many different styles over the course of uh, my career, from people uh, like Jan Pierce and Robert Merrill from the Met to uh, New York Broadway, uh, uh, Motown, Las Vegas, Basie Band kind of you know performers, people like Stephen Eady, and uh, so so many others. So I had. I wouldn't say a bag of tricks, but I had a whole bag of skills that I was able to, uh, and this area was my university. Now, this is where I grew up for the first 10, 15 years. I was working up here. I took a lesson every week with Joe Allard, uh, either in his studio in Manhattan or at his home in Tenafly, New Jersey. So I was studying, and when I came up here in the evening, that was my practical working for the performers. You mentioned Juilliard before. Yeah. Did you attend? No, no, I wasn't matriculated. Okay. No. Uh, Joe, uh, Bob Ackerman, my dear friend, was a student of Joe, and I was going through a transition period, and uh, Bob said to me, I think it's time for you to get back into music, because I was unhappy doing what I was doing, and I was kind of floundering around, and I was still at home, and uh, you know, it was comfortable, but I knew I had to branch out. I, I, had, I had to get on uh, with my life. So I started studying with Joe Allard in 1961. And in 1964, at the end of a lesson, he said to me, I have an opportunity I think you'd be interested in. And at that time, they had these little dance uh-huh. bands called uh, uh, territory bands. And they had an itinerary. And it was a little Sammy K-type dance band uh, playing country clubs, golf clubs. We played military bases, Grange Halls out in the rural areas. And in 1964, in March 64, I went on on the road uh, with this band. I was out for about from March until July. And when I came back, that was my re-entry into the music business. I had friends that were working out at Tamament. And they uh, introduced me to a couple of band leaders in 1965 and 1966. I did the summer season uh, tournament in the Poconos. And I also had friends from New Jersey playing in the bands uh, at Grossinger's. And that was my introduction up here. And then one thing led to another. And I met Frank Petroselli, who was working at the Concord. And in 1967, they were looking for uh, another saxophone player one man was leaving, and uh, Frank recommended me for the job. And at first, Marty Beck didn't want me because uh, I had a beard. He said, no, no beards, no beards. And anyhow, uh, I guess he got desperate, and he told Frank to have me get in touch with him. And that started me back on the trail, and here I am today. And well, it was 52 years ago, I was a novice, and now I'm kind of the keeper of the history. Do you play um, instruments besides the saxophone? Uh, Yeah, as part of my uh, work, uh, I needed to play uh, clarinet and flute, so I needed to be proficient on that. So I played the clarinets. Uh, I also played 
a number of different saxophones from soprano, tenor, baritone. Alto saxophone was my main instrument, but I had to play clarinet because in the days of the orchestras, when we had strings, the woodwind sections had to play in concert with the, uh, the string sections. So you had to be proficient on, on flutes and clarinet and piccolo and things like that. What motivated you to initially choose the saxophone? Do you remember? Uh, one thing was I had an overcrowded tooth condition, so I couldn't play trumpet. And uh, somehow saxophone just came up into the mix. And my first instrument was, uh, it was a rental horn. It was an old C melody. In those days, in the big bands in the 1920s, they had, uh, it was a non-transposing instrument. In other words, it could play off of a, a piano sheet. And uh, they were very popular in the 1920s. So uh, that was my first rental horn. And for my 11th birthday, uh, my father asked John D'Andrea, uh, who his son was studying with, and they had a friend, and they wanted me, they wanted to get me my own instrument you know, for my 11th birthday. And uh, anyhow, uh, they, they did. It was a refurbished con and bordered in Montclair, New Jersey, and that was my first instrument outside of uh, the rentals. And then at the end of high school, in around 1957, I bought my first uh, professional uh, Selmer, which was a, a, a top brand, you know, and it's still one of the top brands you know, to this day. So what was your early career like? I think you've already hit on some things. Yeah, I traveled, I traveled with the dance band. And then uh, in 1964, when I came off of the road, uh, uh, there was a fellow I knew who was working at the Pines Hotel in South Fallsburg. And he had to take medical leave for two weeks. And he recommended me. And my first celebrity performer that I ever worked with was in the show band at the Pines Hotel in summer of 64. And the first celebrity was uh, Vic Damone, a popular singer of the 1950s. You know, so that was my first celebrity performer that I worked with, yes. And it just took off from there. So I think you already uh, answered what brought you to perform in the Catskills. Yeah, yeah. My, my friendships with my friends from, uh, from New Jersey. I, I showed you that photo from 1955. Sure. I had friends in that band who were working at Grove Centers. Okay. Um, which of the hotels did you perform in? The Concord was my main job. Okay. But I, uh, I did subs in all of hotels, from Cutcher's to the Raleigh, uh, Neville, uh, the Fallsview, the Granite. And, uh, Grossingers? So, yeah, I, I started at Grossingers in 1966 on a part-time basis, and then, in, as I said, Frank Petroselli introduced me to Marty Beck in 1967, and I joined the Concord Orchestra in 1967, and I was on that job until they closed in 1998. Wow. And in the interim, in 1993, I became affiliated with Holland America Cruise Line, so I was able to spend the winters on the cruise ships doing shows and entertainment, and then... I would come back 
in uh, the spring and work the balance of the season in the resort. So at that time in 1993, I could see that the end was coming and the Concord closed in 1998. So uh, I was already kind of grandfathered into uh, the, the cruise ship business. You gave me a list of all the celebrities you performed yeah. with, and it's quite an extensive list. Yeah, it is. Um, did you have a favorite person you performed with? Uh, I liked all of them. I was, I was uh, very keen on uh, uh, Gregory Hines and, uh, and Maurice Hines, Hines and Dan. I started working with them in 1966. Uh, I loved their show, and I was devastated when uh, Gregory died at such an early age. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, also, too, uh, in 1951, we got a TV, and Milton Berle was all the rage then. And later on, to uh, be performing in his shows, being part of the show, uh, that was a thrilling moment. Also, too, uh, 1951, my parents took my sister and I to the old Paramount Theater for the Christmas show, and Billy Eckstein, who was a singer-performer, he was also... A, a jazz band leader in the 1940s. Uh, his pianist and singer was Sarah Vaughan at the time, mm -hmm. around 1945. And in 1951, I saw him. I had just started playing the year before. And 15 years later, uh, I was working with him in the hotel show bands from Tamman to uh, the Catskills. So uh, that, that was a big thrill. You know, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would be involved in something like that. But that's how my life proceeded. You said the Paramount Theater, I assume, uh, in New York? Yes. Okay. Not, yeah. not the one in the middle town. Not doing the middle town. Okay. I um, didn't find that until, you know, I came up here in the mid-60s. <laughs> um, I asked if you had a favorite performer. Do you, do you have a favorite story, maybe one story about performing in the Catskills? Uh, 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 there, there are so many. Uh, I, re I, re <laughs> I, re I remember one. It was a rehearsal with Jan Pearson. It was around the Jewish holidays. And during the rehearsal, uh, things were getting a little heated, you know, in the orchestra between the conductor and one of the personnel, and it got down to expletives, deleted. Oh, my. <laughs> and, and Jen turns around from the mic and says, boys, please, it's a holiday. <laughs> so I, I, I always remember that. Always That's remember cute. That. Yes. Um, I guess this is a similar question. Was there an outstanding highlight of performing in the Catskills? Every show I did. Every show I, did. I, I enjoyed. I, I loved the dancers because they were very devoted. They were dedicated. They were there from uh, rehearsal from start to finish, from uh, Shirley MacLaine, Juliet Prowse, uh, Rita Moreno, uh, and uh, Cheetah, Cheetah Rivera. I, led, I later met Cheetah on one of the ships that I was, I was working on. And uh, she, she was angry with the, uh, the ship's compliment because uh, they asked, you know, I, she asked, her people asked if I'd play clarinet, and somebody in the office said no. <laughs> and she found out I played clarinet, and she was very angry with them. Oh, uh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> so... Tell me, um, you mentioned the cruise ships before. How did you come to perform on the cruise ships? What happened was that in uh, January of 1993, I got a call from one of my friends. And he had gotten a call from the Peter Duchin office 
in New York, which was a big uh, club date office. They did uh, you know galas and weddings and parties for the uh, ultra rich. Anyhow, he couldn't do. Uh, he had an old dog and he didn't want to go out. And they needed a replacement on one of their ships. And I got a call in January of 1993. And fortunately, I had a valid passport because I had to go out within you know, a week's time. And I had a valid passport. All my papers were in order. And uh, I took the job. And right out of the gate, I had a world cruise, which was my wow. first, yeah, my first experience. And from there, it... Uh, it's a long, circuitous story, but it went from being at the right place at the right time through a near catastrophe, and I was called upon to come in, and that really started my career with them. I was playing originally in a dance band, and then uh, what happened, we were in Bali, Indonesia, and at that time, their show band consisted of uh, six horns. And uh, one of the tenders broke down in Valley, and two of their saxophone players were standard, stranded on the shore. And the band leader came into the Lido cafeteria uh, looking for me and said, would you play uh, our dance set at 7? I said, sure. And I sight-read the dance book, and he, after... Uh, I read the dance book. He said, would you be interested in coming with the company? And I saw that the, as I said, it was 1993 and the Concord closed in, in 98. So I could see that the end was coming. So that's when I started to make the transition. And that lasted until uh, 2012. Wow. Yeah, so I worked for them until age 72, which is good. You have been all over the world. You've mentioned some yeah. of the places you've been. Do you have a favorite place? Oh, I, I, I have so many. Uh, uh, I love Sydney, Australia, and of course Hong Kong, and Cape Town, South Africa, uh, and St. Petersburg, Russia, and I was very fortunate to be able to visit uh, homes of uh, some of the famous composers, uh, Edvard Grieg's home in Bergen, Norway, and uh, John Sibelius's home in Helsinki, Finland, and uh, John Lewis Stevenson's home in Appia, Western Samoa, uh, and Ernest Hemingway's house in uh, Key West, Florida, one of his residences. You really have been all over the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I feel so for. Oh, yeah, also to Rio de Janeiro. And uh, the tango shows in Buenos Aires were out. Just, just wonderful, wonderful evenings. Yeah, yeah. So I asked you before about highlights of working in the Catskills, were there highlights of performing on the cruise ships? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of my fondest memories is working with Burt Backrack. Uh, this was in, when was it, around 1998. Uh, he was on going on tour to Australia, so he and his compliment, I guess, in, uh, in lieu of paying for passage, did a show on the ship, and uh, that was probably one of the most memorable memorable shows I, I can never remember playing. I was getting compliments left and right. It was very saxophone friendly, so I took it for whatever it was worth. The hugs and kisses afterwards were very nice, too. So, uh, 
when and why did you retire from performing on a steady basis? Uh, my sister had cancer. Okay. And in uh, 2012, she was going into her last stages. And I was scheduled to do the world cruise in 2012. And I, uh, I demurred because I stayed to be with her. And I, I was fortunate because uh, she went into hospice in April of uh, 2012, and she passed in July. So I was here with her at the end. And I was going on 872, and my time was limited there anyhow. Even the captains were retiring at 62 or 64. So here I was an aging musician and still able to do the thing, but uh, I voluntarily uh, uh, stopped because uh, to, to be with my sister in her last days. And that is it. Now, you still perform weekly at yeah. Cirella's mm -hmm. in Conianga Lake, and how did you get that gig? Uh, anyhow, uh, in between my ship assignments, uh, there was a guitarist, uh, Al Defino, who lived in Hurleyville, and he had been in Boston for many years. He had taught at Berkeley School of Music up there, and uh, in, uh, after teaching at Berkeley, he went to live in Europe. He went to Belgium, and he started working the uh, party circuit, the jazz circuit, in the different countries, and in, in Belgium, in the Netherlands, uh, Italy, France. And uh, when he left uh, Belgium, came back here, and he was working at a little... Uh, it was like uh, a continental cafe called Nadia's, in, in Hurleyville. In Hurleyville, yes. yeah. It was like diagonally across from Frankie and Johnny's. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, Al was working there, he was playing guitar, and he invited me to come and sit in with him. So I'd come in for an hour and sit in with him. And then uh, Jerry Sorosi, who was building uh, the restaurant at the time, originally was a garage, and he, uh, he liked what Al was doing, and he said, I'm opening a restaurant and I'd like for you to work in my restaurant. And I just came along, you know, as, as the baggage. And unfortunately, Al passed away about a year and a half ago, and that's how I remain uh, on the job, you know, at Cirello. So it's just basically playing background music, dance music, same kind of stuff that I did in the hotels. But it keeps me active, it keeps me sociable, and it keeps my skills, and it keeps, you know, the gray matter going. So. Uh, yeah, um, I'm happy. I'm happy for that. That's good. When you look back on your career, is there anything you would change? Not really. Uh, the only thing I would change would be to finish my college degree. I never finished college. But my whole life wasn't practical. You, know, you got to see the world. I got to see the world, and I, I was a very good student in my secondary schooling. And I was good in history and English and geography. And, but music was the key to everything. It was the key to the cultures. That's how I became interested. Because I worked with so many different nationalities on the ship. And they would say, how do you know so much about my country? And I said, well, through music, I read about your country and your culture in my history and my geography books. So I, you know, I was always... Uh, 
And also, too, I met so many interesting people. I, uh, I met journalists. I met uh, attorneys. I met uh, business people. As a matter of fact, I remember once I was sitting in Alito, and this little man came up to me, and yes, he could sit with me. I said, sure. I had seen him walking around the ship. And anyhow, he said to me, uh, in a conversation, he said, were you ever at the 1939-1940 World's Fair? And I said, well, actually, I was. I don't remember it because I was in utero. My, my, <laughs> my mother was pregnant with me at the time she went to the 1939-1940 World's Fair. And I was born in April of 1940. He said, well, anyhow, he was an electrical engineer, and he had worked on the uh, GE exhibit for the 1939-1940 World's Fair. And I sat down, and he put me, uh, wrote me a diagram of how an electric grid works and everything. So he basically just wanted company, but I got this whole uh, education on how the electric grid works. And I, uh, I met people that had been through so much history. I remember uh, one lady, Angelina Brandon, and she was born in, in Serbia. She was seven years older than I, and she was an international journalist. And she told me uh, about her history when uh, the Nazis came in in the late 1930s. So I was getting all of this information, uh, practical information, from literally the horse's mouth, also to one of my colleagues, Danny Marsik. Uh, at the Concord, he played bass and violin. Uh, Danny was born in Sudetenland, which was a uh, uh, province of, uh, outside of Prague, 1924. And... Uh, he, his mother's father was Jewish. He wasn't raised Jewish, but he knew of his heritage. And when uh, the Nazis came into Prague in 1942, he was taken as forced labor. And he spent, he spent two years in a, in a uh, labor camp, which is where he met his wife. She was a young woman. He was about 18. She was about 20, 21. And she, she was a foreman in a factory. She wasn't part of the Nazi regime, but she was a young woman just working this plan, and she fell in love with him, and she used to leave food for him, and he swept her offices so he wouldn't starve, and they, met, and they married him. He also had relatives that lived in Prague uh, when uh, the communists uh, came in. So I was getting firsthand information from the people that actually lived through it. And a lot of my younger colleagues on the ship had parents my age, especially from England. Uh, their parents were my age, and their parents had survived World War II. Their parents had sent them out to the countryside to get them out of the cities because of the V-2 uh, bombing attacks. So uh, I was getting literally getting history from the people that lived it. Yeah, yeah. You got probably more of an education doing what yeah. you did, then Absolutely. you would have gotten in a college. Uh, yeah, so. probably, yeah. Was there anything I didn't ask you about your career and your life yeah. that you think is important for well, people to know about you? I would tell people, if at all uh, possible, to follow your dream, follow your proclivities, follow the things that, that make you happy, and uh, be diversified. You know, be ready, uh, be open to change. And now that I'm in my older age, I'm, I'll, I'll be 82 in a couple of months, and I really can't believe 
this wonderful thing that happened to me. Uh, it was partly luck, but it was also the preparation and being there when the opportunity came. Uh, I have to mention on my first trip, not only did I replace uh, another musician, I was on the ship for two weeks and I was 53 years old at the time. My roommate was uh, an older big band player. He was 70 at the time and used to have a pipe full of smoke before he went to sleep. And you can't do that on the ship. Even though you know marijuana might have been legal in, in Holland, you're on an international cruise ship and we're going to places in the world in Malaysia where it's a capital offense, you know, we'll hang you from the yard arm. Anyhow, uh, we get to uh we get to Auckland, New Zealand two weeks after I boarded and I went off into the city and they brought on drug sniffing dogs at the time. And by the time I got back to the ship, I saw one of the activity staff and he said, security's looking for you. And he was looking for my roommate. He says, you guys are in deep do. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so they, they found drugs in your cabin. So it, it almost ended before it started. But the only reason it didn't end for me is that we, at that time they had a clause in the contract that if a member of the band was fired for due cause, the whole band could be fired, but they weren't going to send back, you know, four musicians from uh, back to New York, from uh, uh, Auckland, New Zealand. So uh, at first, everybody thought it was me because I was the younger guy, had the shades and, and, and the Van Dyke and the guy from New York. And, and it wasn't. I was clean. You know, the authorities, you know, they took out my horns and put them on the bed and they went through my dresser drawers and the closets. And uh, unfortunately, my roommate, he threw me under the bus. He originally said that the marijuana was mine and I put it in his uh, toilet kit and they, they just weren't buying it. And then after that, that was when we were in Bali, Indonesia, and the tender broke down and uh, the two saxophone players got stranded on the shore and the band leader came looking for me. <laughs> and I read the book and he op he said, would you like to join the company? So they really needed you. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a, it was luck, but it was also preparation. Uh, uh, I think uh, uh, it was Denzel Washington who uh, was talking with uh, another actor and they were talking about what luck plays in it. And they seemed to feel that it was preparation and opportunity. So be prepared, and then when the right opportunity comes along, uh, you, I was lucky. I hit it right out of the park. You know? I, I can't believe my good fortune, but it happened that way. <laughs> that does it for today's episode of the Sullivan County Democrat Podcast, brought to you by the Kitchen Table Cafe in Calicoon, New York. Check out their Instagram to see what they're cooking up for Tuesday dinner. Until next time, we hope everyone stays safe and has a wonderful day.